2: And welcome to the Middle East Studies podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Ruben Silverman, and with me today is Dr. Abner Wischnitzer, a professor in the Department of Middle Eastern and African history at Tel Aviv University. His first book, Reading Klux Alaturka, Time and Society in the Late Ottoman Empire, was published in 2015. His new book, which we'll be discussing today, is As Night Falls: 18th Century Ottoman Cities After Dark published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. And before we get into the book, I'd just like to ask you, Professor, if you could tell a little bit of your background, how you came to these topics of time and now darkness?
1: Um, hi. First of all, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and thank you for inviting me. Um, well, I, um, I'm very much interested in um, things that are not uh, usually seen as uh, important or things that we tend to miss because they are transparent in a way um, like time, like uh, um, darkness. Um, They are all around us and because we grow up into them, so to speak, we we don't notice them uh, at all. Uh, in the same way, I'm interested in things like, like boredom or like facial hair, which is so like in the Middle East, it's so, uh, you know, it's, it's everywhere. Um, you tend not to notice it. But in fact, um, facial hair, for example, is uh, was and still is very important in defining oneself uh, in different ways. Uh, boredom is something that it's not one of these sensational emotions but we all uh, um, cope with it and think about it and experience it and it might be um, also historical in the sense that um, it changes the way people perceive it and deal with it changes from time to time from society to society so these kind of things um, uh, are interesting to me because they are usually much more significant than we acknowledge um, at first glance. So I, I guess my my uh, interest in, in the dark hours is very similar in this way. Um, we usually don't think about it when thinking about history, although there is already uh, about three decades of, of histories of the night. Um, in the history of the middle east uh, there's almost not n- no work done on these issues and uh it's quite literally keeping uh half of human history in the dark, meaning that we 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 know next to nothing about uh how nights or or urban landscapes urban you know uh, centers were organized how uh, commerce how politics and 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 uh, war uh, was um, shaped or or uh, interacted with darkness so I thought this is worth uh, exploration
2: indeed and that's something I was hoping to start us off talking about which is uh, over the years I've seen some books like you mentioned about Nighttime in, in Europe. Uh, I think Evening's Empire is a book I remember reading maybe a decade ago something like this But I until I read your book. I really had not seen anything about the Ottoman Empire So I, maybe if you can talk a little bit about what is the what is the general interest in the night? And then what do you think particularly looking at the Ottoman Empire has to tell
1: us differently? So first of all, I think um, Night uh, darkness, um, sleep has become a main focus of uh, researchers in, in various disciplines uh, of the last uh, 10 or 15 years, uh, maybe 20 years. And it has to to do with current discussions of the present of the night and also the, the future of the night. We are talking about problems that have to do with, uh, with light pollution um if it's if it's uh, the 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 danger it presents to ecosystems or its uh health hazards or the uh, amount of carbon emissions uh it's uh, it involves uh all of these things uh the the problem of stellar visibility all of these things create a new discussion in the costs of, of this hyper illumination and uh, recognition of the importance of darkness in different levels, from the from health to aesthetics, um, and to this we should add current discussions of sleep. Um, the twenty four seven society takes its toll, um, and what we see is a constant intrusion of time that used to be kind of shut shut off, uh, a time of um, relative seclusion, a time of uh, rest um, that is uh, constantly disturbed by beeps and uh, incoming messages and... Uh, constant meddling with social networks and uh, Netflix and all of these things. Um, and indeed, I think one can think about this um, this time of the night as a, um, a frontier of capitalism even. Like various companies are trying to capitalize on this time as Reed Hastings uh, CEO of Netflix said explicitly in two thousand and seventeen and i 'm almost quoting uh, our major competition he said is not with Amazon or HBO our major competition is against sleep. there is a, a large reservoir of time there, something like that, and so they you know the the, the pressures we're experiencing with our uh, daily or nightly life, rather, are not incidental. Uh, and it's not a c- conspiracy. It's a, it's, a, it's a business plan. Um, so I think all of these things together create a need to examine nighttime and sleep from various perspectives, including a historical one. What was the night, what was nightlife before this hyperillumination? How did societies organize? Um, what kinds of nocturnal activity were even possible? What kind of uh, entertainment uh, aesthetics? All of these things. What was the night important for? So, what I'm trying to, to, to say here is that current discussions um, almost reverse traditional ways of looking at darkness as evil, as something that has to be dispelled, uh, conquered, uh, to to a point that it's something that is almost, or not almost, has to be preserved. So we have now dark dark, uh, sky reserves, uh, just like we, quote-unquote, conquered nature, not to say raped it. And now we have to keep some of it, Protected from our own uh, um, deeds, and and the same we need to do with darkness. So we have these dark sky reserves all around the world, uh, which are pretty much the only places uh, you can actually experience deep darkness uh, today. So, out of this understanding that darkness and night has. Uh, significance. It's not just the lack of something. It's not the lack of light. It's not the lack of wakefulness. It is an entity in its own right, with its own impact on humans and non-humans alike. This is where I started from. Now, what what did it mean for past societies? Now, as for as for the Ottoman case, I think it's a particularly Interesting case because whereas histories of the night in early modern Europe mostly advance along an axis of uh, gradual uh, illumination, uh, that also has to do with enlightenment in terms of you know the, the the project of enlightenment. But I'll put that aside for a second. Actual illumination, street lighting. Uh, increasing uh, amounts of light in indoors and and outdoors in the Ottoman Empire, we do not see a parallel um, uh, a parallel process. So you have, on the one hand, some of the processes we see in uh, Western uh, Central Europe, such as uh, urbanization, the the um, Um, branching of uh, the expansion of state apparatus uh, and um, the the rise of a new urban culture and so on and so forth. But it all happens um, in the dark, so to speak. So this uh, opens uh, a a range of questions that do not present themselves when you're working on uh, Western Europe or North America. Uh, we have very little work done on anywhere outside of these areas, which in itself is a problem so this is you know why I think it 's worthwhile
2: indeed so well the way you the way you organize the first half of the book we can say is you move from household out to the larger society, so I thought we could follow that trajectory too, and maybe you can talk a little bit about. Households and how night was experienced in different types of households. So there's depending, how gender comes into play, how class, like smaller households versus the royal household. Uh, households in these different regards would be
1: fascinating to hear a little bit about. So, uh, in general, one of the things that I tried to do in the, in the first chapters is to outline um, kind of the, the the way, or the the rhythm of of twilight, basically, um, and to you know accompany households as they go to sleep, basically, and to try and and learn when this happens and how this happens. Um, so my focus is on on Istanbul and Jerusalem. It should be should be mentioned like these are the two case studies and. The reason I picked these cities is because they are so different. One is a, a, a port city, a major um, metropolitan with a very diverse population, different languages. Um, and the other is a walled city off the mountain, away from, from the sea, uh, more homogeneous, much smaller. We're talking about maybe 8,000 people, maybe 10,000 people uh, during the, the, the 18th century. Um, and, uh, and by this, I want to to say that there is a whole range or sp- spectrum of possible nocturnal realities in the Ottoman Empire during uh, this time. And we're not even talking about the vast majority of people who lived in the villages, in, in, in rural areas. Uh, and we already know that for them to... Um, there was, you know, things went on into the dark to some extent, but my book doesn't cover it. This, this requires a whole, a whole, a whole other uh, research. So even within the urban centers, of course, there were differences between um, uh, along the lines of class and gender and so on. So I would say um, in the residential neighborhoods uh, in Istanbul, um, twilight would be, uh, you know, the time generally between the evening prayer and the night prayer would be timeline uh, a twilight not only in natural terms and, and you know as regards the uh, dwindling uh, light but also in in social terms it mm-hmm. is between it is in between phases. Um, and even Jewish, uh, you know, they discuss whether this time is part of the day or part of the night or, you know, part of, of its own. Um, so for women and children, uh, the evening prayer is a is a border not to be crossed. Uh, this was true for contemporary Europe as well. Women outside after dark risk their reputation. But for men, uh, this is still, you know, this is probably the most profitable time of coffee houses and taverns. Um, and uh, it goes on until the night prayer, which is really the beginning of the actual night. This is when lights in the, in the mosque would be, uh, would be uh, shut uh, down and uh, the night watch would go on patrol and people would make the way home. And uh this happens uh between let's say something like seven fifteen in our terms in, in uh, uh meantime terms between seven fifteen and something like uh ten forty pm mm-hmm. um at at the height of summer so it, it changes with the season of course um And then uh, people would go to sleep, most people, okay, most people, and I'll uh, refer to that in a second, would go to sleep around that time, around the time of the evening, of the night prayer, or slightly thereafter. How do I know this? I know this from narrative sources, but I also know this from a more or less systematic uh, uh, quantitative uh, analysis of 146 cases that were brought to the Uskudar um, court, uh, which uh, 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 they 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 report cases that happened at night, be them uh, quarrels or brawls or uh, fests or you know anything that happened after after sunset. And when you check the time as it is reported, you find very little cases, very few cases that uh, happened after the night prayer. This does not mean that there was nothing going on, but rather that even when we're talking about the dark hours, most of the activity was concentrated between the evening prayer and the night prayer. Um, And then... One of the main reasons for this, I think, is that um, light was quite expensive. Mm. So uh, one of the chapters is it focuses about artificial focus on uh, artificial light and I show that for an unskilled construction construction worker um, to get um, several hours of 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 light would mean, uh, working quite a bit um, and when I compare it to London, for example, uh, you see that it, light is more ex- m- more accessible in London than it is in Istanbul, and it's more accessible in Istanbul in the early eighteenth century than it is in the early nineteenth century so these this this these trends work to discourage uh, nocturnal uh, um, entertainment or, or, or life of any kind because in the total darkness of the 18th century uh, there's very little you can do without candles or lanterns or or artificial lighting. Who has access? Of course the elite. And indeed uh, I show that uh, in the palace, they were able to prolong the uh, activity deeper into the night, up until um, something like two and sometimes three hours after most of the people turned in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see that the difference in differential act- a- access to life translates into uh, differential uh, nocturnal uh, uh, conviviality or entertainment mm-hmm. Uh, or a- ability to to uh, still do things at night, and this again is similar to contemporary Europe, where you also see this gap between uh, the the sleeping time of of commoners and elites. But in Europe, during the same time, um, what we call sometimes nocturnalization—that is, the use of the night for um, activity uh, goes much deeper so elites would spend time together doing things uh, socializing much deeper into the night than was cost, than was uh, customary among elites in Istanbul hmm.
2: well so this brings me to a different question I want to, I want to get into the type of socialization that did happen at night in a second but in the the world outside the house, the world of the street, the nighttime world. What sort of what what, what sort of uh, activity did predominate? Who exercised control? Who was active? And this brings to a wide cast of individuals you t- talk about, from janissaries to Kuhan kuhans to all sorts of different groups. And I'm wondering if you give some sense of this on the streets at night. What is what is happening then?
1: Right. So um, basically, the the authorities uh, are trying to minimize um, traffic at night um, by uh, using uh, different methods, uh, including uh, gating and and you know all kinds of, of barriers. Um, but also imposing uh, the the obligation of each individual to to carry a lantern, which mm. also means imposing costs on people who want to be af- uh, outside after dark, um, and the possibility of getting caught is also the possibility of losing face because if you were outside after dark without a lantern, that means you are up to no good. <laughs> and, um, and there were different practices of shaming uh, that I write about, which usually means what I call bringing to light, which means exposing those who try to wrap themselves in darkness, uh, exposing them in the eyes of the community. Um, nevertheless, People did go outside, uh, seeking different things. So first of all, we have the people who are making a living uh, after dark. And um, the night opened uh, possibilities of li- livelihood that, that that they could not offer. Uh, and these possibilities were mostly taking, taken by people who had no other choices. And it still is the case that... Night jobs are usually uh, not something that uh, people choose to do. They are forced to do um, still today. And this was the case in 18th century Istanbul. So we have fishermen that are practicing different types of of, uh, nocturnal uh, fishing. You have um, hammam stalkers. Uh, You have uh, people that are processing meat to get the meat ready by the uh, morning uh, prayer. Um, you have guards of different types, um, neighborhood guards and, you know, people on patrol. You have a, a vast sector of uh, of uh, what we would call um, male-oriented entertainment, which means uh, drinking, gambling, and commercial sex. Uh, and I show that we're talking about uh, hundreds and hundreds of taverns. Uh, most of them are unauthorized. Um, and around them sometimes uh, brothels and sometimes it's the same place and so on. Um, so you have a, a rather large population that is, is drawing its, its la- livelihood uh, in the dark. Um, of course, you can mention uh, crime and smuggling of all types um, among these 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 people, and uh, most of these people again are uh, of of a modest uh, uh, socioeconomic background. Um, they take these jobs because they need the money and because they they cannot afford to care about the the stigma the the you know negative uh, values that are associated with some of these um, some of these professions. Um, then you have the people that uh, use the night for uh, contemplation, you know, um, Sufi or or, or Orthodox, uh, um, uh, you know, turning to God um and there's there's a there's a lot of uh writing in particular among Sufis about the um the benefits of staying up uh uh, awake and i use poetry Sufi poetry to to show how they um treated uh the night uh how they they perceived it positively as as the best time to to reach union with God, um, but also the the torment that this these practices of denying oneself sleep uh, were involved in, um, and then finally you had the the, the people who were seeking entertainment. Um, I mentioned them before from the other side of those who offer this entertainment and make a living, but you have. Uh, definitely thousands and thousands of people according to the numbers of institutions or establishments that sell these services, like uh, alcohol uh, we can tell that the numbers of cl- that the clientele was was vast um, and these people too um, darkness is particularly important for them because if we're talking about Jews and, and Christians who are allowed to drink fine, you know, they can be seen drinking, no problem. But for, um, and Muslims who don't particularly care about their reputation, uh, if they're dervishes or what have you, you know, lower class, migrants to the cities uh, and so on. But you have apparently a rather large population of people who, Muslims who seek, who want to drink, uh, but don't want to be seen drinking. And then, so so you have this um, out-of-sight scene that is huge, but and it goes on for decades and decades, and everybody knows it's there. So it's not that darkness uh, hides this scene from communities or from the authorities, but rather that it allows everybody to turn a blind eye. To act as if it didn't uh, exist, mm-hmm. and people do mind. I mean, some people mind, and um, but the state has not, not the state as a, as a monolith. But different officials have vested interest in this scene because they draw tax money and and um, uh, you know penalties that are inflicted on people who are caught. Drunk in the streets, and of course, uh, bribe bribes money. Uh, so, from the highest authorities that draw officially draw the tax money that is livid on the taverns, to the you know Janissary on patrol who can draw uh, a bribe for keeping a tavern uh, open when he when the time has come to close it. So many different people have an interest in keeping this scene. Alive and indeed, it, it remains uh, very wide. Uh, and every once in a while, uh, you know, there comes a sultan that says, "Okay, we need to shut this down." But usually, uh, it 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 takes very sh- very short time for this to reopen. Um, so, I, one last thing that I would say about the the, the let's say that the creatures of Ottoman of the Ottomanite <laughs> is that. It was dangerous outside uh, because of the uh, limited surveillance cap- capabilities of both communities and the authorities. And so, those who did go outside were either those who had to because they had no other choice; they had to make a living, or those who could, you know, rely on themselves or on the, the or on others. Uh, to protect themselves. So, for example, uh, young men, especially janissaries, that I try to show, were particularly uh, friendly with darkness. Um, they could rely on they, you know, their arms and their solidarity, their friends to, you know, to protect themselves. But for people who are uh, weaker. Um, night was, was certainly dangerous and uh, as I said for women it was a time to be in so it's important because uh, it, it's, it warns us against um, imagining early modern nights as a kind of uh, haven uh, that everybody can find refuge in mm-hmm. uh, from the oppressive durnal uh, order It was that for some people, but for some others, it was certainly not a time of freedom. Hmm.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Fascinating. So this, this, this brings me to, I guess, the more, uh, the political economy of the nighttime. Where is the light coming from? How is it produced? How is it distributed? Who gets it and and why? How does this? You you call it the Ottoman lighting system? How does this work?
1: Right. So basically, it's not very different from other uh, commodities uh, that are provisioned uh, to to Istanbul um, uh, from from flour to to uh, sheep, but. Uh, it has its own um, uh, uniqueness in some way. So basically, um, light in Istanbul, uh, as opposed to Jerusalem mm. uh, and other places, uh, is made usually from either tallow or beeswax. Tallow uh, is usually in the Ottoman Empire produced from sheep, uh, in Europe, is very often from cows or other things, um, but in in the Ottoman Empire, it is uh, drawn from sheep that are uh, um, brought to Istanbul in the hundreds of thousands and slaughtered uh, in the slaughterhouses around the city, and the candle production uh, producing uh, guilds were. Uh, um, subject to the guild of the butchers because they drew the raw material from uh, from the butchers and they would get tellows and there was a whole system of, you know, deciding uh, what um, uh, candle makers get, what share... Of the tallow that is produced in Yadikule or in Ayub or so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were many, many different conflicts about um, getting this, uh, the, the tallow, uh, because some butchers found ways to uh, sell it on the black market. And mm-hmm. then uh, the, the candle makers would not get their share and they would be uh, without. Uh, the raw material they need to to make candles with, so but at least in 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 theory uh, they were supposed to get the tallow and the linen for for the week and 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 um, produce the the candles. Um, these candles were the tallow candles were um, very dim, uh, smelly, uh, and they took constant. Um, Maintenance to mm-hmm. to to just simply to burn. Uh, if you didn't trim the the wick uh, as as often as uh, every fifteen minutes or so, uh, it would gutter and you would lose much of the burning material, and it would emit even more smoke and even more bad uh, smell. So uh, keeping candles alive would take a lot of, especially when you have more than one, and one was, I mean, you couldn't do anything with just one tallow mm-hmm. candle. You, you need quite a few to, to even do the most basic things, never mind reading or anything like that. Um, then you had beeswax, which was much uh, lighter. The light uh, it produced was was lighter, and it didn't uh, produce this bed odor, and Um, it took less maintenance. And so uh, elites had access to beeswax, which was much more expensive, uh, as much as three times uh, as much as uh, tallow candles. Um, So it was centrally uh, organized, the provisioning um, of, of the raw material. So, you know, the government was concerned about um, scarcities, um, and if you if there was uh, if you know all, all the all the tello arriving to the city from the outside was supposed to go to the central um, depot, and uh, if they sense that uh, there is a danger of scarcity, they would try to you know get uh, governors. Uh, to send in more tallow or more sheep from the uh, provinces. And it had um, a curve that was you know uh, uh, connected to the life cycle of the sheep, because um, the sheep would usually um, they would uh, have the young ones in the spring, and only after that would uh, sheep be marched on foot from, say, the Danube provinces to Istanbul. Uh, And then in the summer, they would be uh, kept around Istanbul to to fatten after the long march, and then brought into the slaughterhouses. Uh, So in the uh, autumn, you would have enough meat and tallow. But by the end of winter, very often, you got uh, scarcities, you know, there wasn't enough Tell uh, tello there weren't enough candles, and people complained, and sometimes even rioted mm. because there was no uh, candle in uh, to buy. Uh, so the government was concerned about it, not only on the uh, on the, the part of provisioning it, but also about distributing it, making sure that okay, the palace got or the palaces of the royal family got their share, and then mosques, very important. Um, because light was used to mark specific days and to allow prayers to go on and to uh, um, exhibit sultanic power at night, um, but also ordinary people, as I said, they were concerned that uh, you know this, this was considered a basic uh, necessity, and when people didn't got the, didn't get their candles, they they didn't they didn't like it and they sometimes uh, voice their concerns. Um, so the, this, this system of distribution was supposed to make sure that uh, everybody got their share but of course um, commoners got less light and of poor quality um, and the, 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 the gap was, was quite significant. I tried to show how much it you know, the, the costs of these things, and uh, and you see the immediate impact it has on one's ability to prolong uh, his or her activity into the dark hours. If you don't have, or if light is so expensive, you know, there's not much you can do, even inside. Hmm. Well,
2: now, the, the final but big question I want us to kind of work our way through is you've chosen the 18th century to look at, the 1700s. What does does the use, does the symbolism, does the politics of light change during this uh, 100, 120, 130 year period? And if so, how do you see it changing?
1: Sure. Um, so indeed, the, the final uh, part of the book, uh, is is more about politics and the way night and light at night is used by hegemonic actors especially the palace and counter hegemonic actors, especially the Janissaries uh, from the late uh, let's say uh, late 18th century uh, all the way down to 1826. Um and yes, I think there is a change in the way the palace uses light to demonstrate power, and this has to do with uh, um early you know the the, the the attempts or the effort the court puts into uh reclaim its position in Istanbul following, you know, the Edune uh, episode, um, and the palace does this in many, many different ways, as different historians have already demonstrated, since the early 18th century, and maybe especially uh, doing the so-called uh, tulip era, but maybe, you know, there's a whole discussion going on about, about this periodization, um, but... What I try to show is that when it comes to nighttime, uh, power was demonstrated through light. Uh, the ability to amass uh, huge amounts of, of candles and, and, and lamps uh, was uh, um, um, an expression of power. Either the, the, the Sultan or, or you know, members of the elite sought to demonstrate their power by staging um, demonstrations of light or light spectacles. And again, this is very similar to contemporary Europe, um, where you would have very similar uh, light spectacles. And uh, the Ottomans would uh, certainly invite European envoys to witness their uh, light spectacles, uh, which included not only thousands of lights and mirrors and um, bottles of uh, uh, you know water in different colors that created a mm. kind of a, a game of, of light and re- reflections, but also uh, fireworks. Um, and these could be private or semi-private occasions, or this could be part of a of a public festival, but. In, in all of these uh, uh, events, light was explicitly linked to power. And by explicitly, I mean that texts that were written for and about these events made the connection uh, uh, very explicit in poetry, in, in chronicles, um, in tsunamis, uh, uh, that is, you know, festival albums... Um and European envoys really v- very easily understood you know the politics of it because it was a very much the same in Europe. Uh and at least one Ottoman was invited to witness such a festival in in France when he was there. This is um, uh you, Mr. Kizchelebi in the early 1720s. Mm-hmm. So um the, the the palace is especially the palace is uh, putting large amount of money into these light spectacles, also into lighting up mosques um, and uh, festivals that have to do with the royal dynasty. So it's really uh, quite literally projecting power um, and uh, stressing the. The link between uh, dynasty and Islam and religion, you know, din and, din and devlet, um, in particular ways. For example, by uh, lighting up uh, uh, mahia inscriptions, inscriptions made of lanterns that that um, highlighted these connections. These inscriptions would be uh, hung between towers, towers of the minarets of. Of mosques, of imperial mosques, with 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 such messages. Um, So yes, we we do see a a way of uh, using real light in this way, but also metaphoric light. So the writing about the dynasty um, increasingly identifies uh, the 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 monarch with light. And its enemies with darkness. Now, this is of course an, an age-old technique, rhetorical device. Uh, but what we see, I think, in the as, as the century progresses, is that increasingly the Janissaries are associated with darkness, and by so doing, uh, writers that are associated with the palace um, turn uh, what is. In the end of the day, uh, political, uh, social, social-political struggle uh, into a kind of a moral uh, struggle that of, of good against evil, and of course, once you frame a struggle in these terms, um, the the consequences uh, are, uh, that that it 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 should end. By the, the the you know total defeat of darkness, uh, there's no way you can compromise with when you're using such dichotomic terms. Um, and I think uh, uh, metaphoric light and metaphoric darkness are increasingly used to frame the growing tension between the palace and Janissaries late uh, 18th century, early 19th century. Um, so it is a game that is played not only in the material world, but also in discourse um, with interesting interactions between the two, between those two um, um, layers or aspects.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, one, one thing I particularly like about the book is the way you draw on just such different types of sources. So you have the, the economic uh, data to talk about production distribution you have uh, court court records to look at how uh, policing is done but and you also have you also bring in so much po- poetry and you analyze you analyze and use it as examples what draws what drew you to poetry as a way of coming at some of these topics I'm just curious
1: so my my love affair with with Ottoman poetry, um, and it's a good good opportunity to mention yeah. Walter Andrews because it 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 began with uh, with studying with Walter Andrews in at the University of Washington in Seattle, um, uh, the late Walter Andrews, which whom whom I, I I miss a lot, and I'm not the only one. Um, so I got there when I was working on my first book and. Walter kind of opened this whole world of Ottoman poetry, uh, about which I knew nothing, uh, and then Selim Kuru also. Um, they kind of showed me the way and the, the this huge corpus of texts that um, that over centuries was so important in in Ottoman social life and not just among the elites, as we once used to think. Um, and not only as a... I mean, I don't use it only as a, a window onto the past, so to speak, but, but understanding that this uh, poetry was so important, you, on, you ask how it was used in by contemporaries to mediate, to understand, to muse about, to think about, uh, to frame uh, different aspects, in this case, of the night. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just... Um, um, I, I, I realise there's so much poetry on nighttime. I just scratched the surface. Um, and the sea miles that I used... In this poetry, have to do with so much of the uh, nocturnal experience that some of it is no longer available to us. For example, the stars. Anyone who's read even one couplet knows that <laughs> the stars figure so prominently in this poetry. Um, but if you look at the sky tonight, you know, from wherever you uh, you, you are at. You won't be able to see the stars, but for them it was just you know they, they raise their their eyes and they see you know this incredible uh, nightly sky um, or the dew or the you know the evening wind or whatever you um, it was really um, uh, a bodily uh, feeling that that you have to understand in order to understand some of this poetry so. Um, I just thought that it was a natural go-to uh, corpus, but certainly it cannot stand alone because of the you know, specific uh, problems that this source, like any other source, presents. Um, I don't think it's any better or any worse than working with I, I don't know court records or chronicles or surnames or ruznames or whatever, <laughs> and each and every one of these sources present its own complications and you need to uh, figure out how... I mean, these are not uh, uh, minds of facts that you can just go in and dig. Uh, you have to understand how, how each of these sources or the traditions um, organize the texts. I mean, these are basic, mm-hmm. you know... Um, Understandings for any historian, but um, yeah, I, I enjoyed working with it. Although it's it's not always easy.
2: No, I imagine, given my uh, limited Ottoman uh, language abilities, I can uh, I, I can do nothing but just be impressed. <laughs> so very nice. I mean, let me, I mean, guess what, let me let, let me wrap this up by asking. You mentioned beards. You've mentioned uh, boredom. Uh, Are these topics that you're now looking
1: into for, say, your next uh, book, or are you looking at other things? boredom and and facial hair are things that I've already published on. Um, uh, Articles rather than books. But no, right right now I'm looking at the history of imagination. Can imagination be historicized? And what it means to Uh, approach Ottoman imagination as a historian uh, because there are discussions of imagination in different disciplines, uh, but there's almost no historical discussions of imagination anywhere in the world. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm starting to think about how societies um, construct, limit, shape, uh the imagination of individuals um what protocols are used um and um this has to do with work that has been recently done in the in history of cognition uh history of emotions things like that so this is what uh what i'm looking at these days but this is really just the beginning. It's, uh,
2: Well, it certainly sounds like an interesting new field of inquiry. Uh, I look forward to it. Well, thank you very much for taking time to talk with us today. It's really much appreciated. And the book is wonderful. So I hope people listening will go out and read it because we only scratched the surface of all the interesting examples, anecdotes, details that are contained within it. So
1: thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure.